have a, I was afraid the PowerPoint would be goofy because it's, it's a little video thing. It's of a, uh, it's of a bird. Oh, did you see him? There he is. There he is. So I usually kind of, whatever Microsoft recommends, I usually try to pick something somewhat related to the topic. And I thought, well, the cardinal bird, what can I do? And I realized Noah sends out birds from the ark. All right. Well, I, I didn't see a raven or a dove, but we'll go with a cardinal bird. And besides, uh, I just wanted to make Danny squirm. So um, what's that? So, no, they, they, I think they found themselves in Indianapolis with NCAA prison. Um, so, um, so we're in Genesis 6 to 9, uh, which is your reading today. My goal as a general rule, and I say that so that I can have the freedom to break my own rule, um, but uh, I should run for office after a comment like that. Um, but um, as a general rule, whatever our Wednesday reading is for the next nine months, I'd like for us to, to explore. That'll make my life a little easier and take away any creativity necessary. Uh, but, but to know that, okay, I read this today and together uh, tonight, we, we are going to explore. So I think what we'll do is, is I just want to point out a few things. Um, and then uh, hopefully uh, you've, you've got a few things that stuck out to you uh, as you looked at the meeting, the application, and, and maybe even some thoughts. And any questions you have, uh, I will direct them to Danny and let him deal with it. So what I really want to do is emphasize, because there's no way we can do four chapters. Um, so I want to emphasize really two sections, one in chapter six and another in chapter eight, because I assume you're familiar with the story. He gets on a boat, the water comes, and he gets off the boat, the end. Um, so uh, let's start in chapter six uh, with here we see that it says that God saw and what God sees is wickedness and he responds with judgment. We get to chapter eight, we'll see that God remembered and what he remembers is this covenant with humanity, and so he shows mercy. So that, those are two things I want us to see. One on the one hand is judgment. The other is that of mercy, which is the theme of the Bible. And there's tension there throughout the Bible. And in our understanding, right, is, is how do we stay faithful to the justice of God? But how do we stay faithful to the grace of God? And, and that is the tension we see throughout the Bible, which culminates in the cross where grace and mercy kiss. Well, two big questions we see right away. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things of birds and heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Or he was, uh, Don, is this where it says he was perfect? In, in, oh, no, you don't have the real Bible. Oh, you got the wrong Bible. Okay. What? Well, I can look here in this uh, new king. Uh, well, you know, he's a new king. He's, he's similar to his dad. He just isn't as good as dad. That's what, that's what the King James is going on. Well, a uh, couple of things to note here real quickly is I want to highlight verse 1 before I pass by. When you read verse 1, you think this is a good thing, right? Because the commandment of humanity is be fruitful, multiply. 
The problem now is in a broken world, as man multiplies, so does his wickedness. And so what should be a good thing ends up being a bad thing. And so we, we are, in these verses, confronted with, with two questions that um, we'll talk about, but we're not going to solve all the problems. And those two questions are quite obvious. First of all, what is the sons of God mixing with the daughters of men? Right? And, and you may remember months ago, maybe even a few years ago, we spent several weeks on this. Uh, and I won't torture you with that here. In terms of the sons of God, let me give you just two general views of this. Again, just very general views. One is we could call the narrative view. That is that if, if you're reading along, it seems that the sons of God, we could say, are a righteous descendants of Seth. The daughters of men would be the unrighteous descendants of Cain. So if you go back to chapter 5, particularly 4 and 5, you, you get the two genealogies of Cain and Seth. And so the narrative looks as if we are to see, okay, we've got two lines of families, and in chapter 6 they mix. Therefore, the righteous seed become the unrighteous seed. You remember that in Genesis, we are looking for offspring language. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Right? And so we're looking for a hero. And so we see that the line of Seth are good. After all, one of them defies death. That's Enoch. Another one lives for a really long time. He probably thought he was, he was an eternal, uh, going to live forever, right? That's Methuselah. On Cain's side, you don't get any of that. They live, they breed, they die. That's their story. So we think, okay, from Seth's line is going to come the righteous one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so the narrative, you would say, what, what you find is the serpent seems to be taken over the, 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 the seed of Seth, right? So that's, that's the narrative view. I think it's a very real possibility. That was probably the prominent view of Southern whenever I was there among professors. Then there is the traditional view. And this is the prominent view across Christianity, across Judaism throughout history. So it's the traditional view. And what you have here then is uh, a mixture of fallen divine beings and humanity coming together. So, so what you have then is a, is, a, is a reverse of the garden narrative. In the garden, the woman is seduced by the serpents. Here, what you have is the divine being seduced by women. So notice there, it says that they saw that they were attractive. And so this is very much an aversion of that. Um, in chapter 3, a woman and spiritual being have a conversation. She sees and takes for herself. Here in chapter 6, is not a conversation, but it's an engagement where the divine beings see and take for themselves. And what you get then are offspring, a hybrid, a demigogs, if, if, if you will. Not demigogs, demigods, sorry. <laughs> Two very different meanings, uh, usually. Um, and if, if, if you're wanting some biblical reference to this, the phrase sons of God... Uh, usually referred to angelic beings. Job chapter 1 is an example of that. Remember that uh, Satan shows himself with the sons of, God's, uh, sons of God. Um, also, if you read Jude and 2 Peter chapter 2, you, you'll find that their presumption is uh, this reading of Genesis 6. They speak of angels who, who, who have left their proper domain and are in chains and in the time of Noah. It's clearly referencing the, the sons of God, daughters of men. And there's other reasons to, to see this. It's the traditional view of Judaism. So you can read, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of the book First or Second Enoch. It's not in the Bible, um, nor should it be. Um, but uh, it was an influential uh, Second Temple Judaism book. Uh, Jude actually quotes from it. 
Um, and it is the main story of, two, of uh, Enoch. Uh, the books of Enoch is centered around here. Enoch is a prophet against the wicked age that culminates in what he calls the watchers, right, and, and all that. So if you ever watch the so-called history channel, they do their ancient astronauts. If they reference the Bible, they're probably referencing first and second Enoch and the watchers, okay, because those are aliens. Of course they are. Um, so, so that's one, the sons of God, daughters of men. You take whatever position you have, you're probably wrong, so am I. Um, but nevertheless, those are, those are the two, two big ones. Uh, when we first did Genesis 6 years ago, I held more, I leaned more towards the narrative view. I have since leaned more towards the traditional view. So three years from now, I'll probably go back to the, the narrative view. So uh, you, you do whatever it is. Uh, so Southern's influence was on me, but then I've done more research. And, and if, it's almost as if, if the earliest Jews reading the Bible held to this interpretation, I do think that carries some weight. And, and the, 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 the reversal of the narrative, I think, is really impactful. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the second question we have is, who are the Nephilim? Now, Nephilim is a Hebrew term. I am in Hebrew is plural. So, so it's, it's, it's a plural, it's, it's a group of people. Um, again, we, we can't, we can't uh, uncover every rock here. You need to know that they show up again in the Bible uh, by name, um, and it's in Numbers 13. Uh, remember, these are the Israelites entering into the promised land, and what they see are the Nephilim, the sons of Anak. Now, we've spent some time on the Rephilim and the Nephilim and the, uh, the sons of Anak, and, and they're giants in the land, right? What you're getting in the story of Joshua is essentially a retelling of the story of Noah. And, and, and so, so if you translate the Nephilim as giants, just, just, just for our, our purposes, then when Joshua enters into the promised land, he fights uh, the Rephilim, right? And, and, and there, you remember the story of David, he fights the Moabites or someone at the valley of the Rephilim, right? It's the valley of giants, right? And so Joshua is taking possession. Uh, he is flooding, if you will, the wilderness. He is flooding the promised land by cleansing it, right? And he's getting rid of the giants. So, uh, and, and that begins under Moses here. Now, the question is, why are there Nephilim? I don't know. Right. I might have some ideas, but we don't have time and all that. What? Living now? Yeah, they don't live very long. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's giantism. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, if you want to go down a rabbit hole of biblical conspiracy, right, uh, study giants, Okay. Uh, in the Bible, and they're all over the place in the Bible, we, Goliath is the most notable one, which, if we could pause, when David slays the giant, that is within the biblical narrative. He's the giant slayer. He's, he's a new Noah. He's, he's a new Joshua. He's a new Moses. And at the end of his reign, he is nearly slayed by a giant. Right? And so Israel is, is fighting. Now, remember, Saul is tall. He's tall, dark, and handsome, right? And, and what you see is the fall of Saul follows the story of the giants, right? And so uh, David comes, and no one would ever suspect him to be a king. Yet despite him being young and shorter than Saul and all that, he slays giants, right? That's not an accident. Those stories are in there. And he fights the Moabites at the Valley of the Rephilim. So all of that is significant in, in the Bible. Um, so 
in general, the Nephilim are either the good guys or the bad guys. Okay? Most believe they're the bad guys. The term means to fall upon. So it's the fallen ones. So either they triumph over the bad guys, so they're good, or they, they, they are tyrannical. And so uh, this could be the Bible's explanation of kings, of tyrannical kings that come to dominate. So, so if you read ancient Near Eastern uh, literature, what you'll find are demigods uh, establish the Babylonians and the Sumerians and the Akkadians and the Phoenicians and the Philistines and the Assyrians, right? They all have these, these myths that they begin with demigods. And so we are the descendants of giants. We're descendants of the gods. You people over there aren't. We're better than you. And then here comes the Bible saying, no, we're all made in the image of God. And those people you venerate, we'll call them Nephilim, right? They're fallen ones and God destroyed them. You should remember that, right? And so I do think there's a polemic here that, that is going on here. But the general interpretation is that they are giants, likely the offspring of the sons of God and daughters of men. It's possible that we meet one of these Nephilim or a Nephilim-type person in chapter 11, or actually chapter 10. We'll actually talk about this. We won't talk about him, but the, the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. You remember who established probably the Tower of Babel? A guy named Nimrod. Right? Nimrod. Now, if you watch Bugs Bunny, Nimrod means a, a, a you know you're that's a Elmer Fudd is a Nimrod, right? You know, but 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 in the Bible, Nimrod is the opposite of that. He's a hunter. He's a mighty hunter, and it says he hunts animals, but it probably hints that he hunts men as well. He's he's a warrior, right? And it's very likely that he is in that line of Nephilim, at least thematically. Uh, but nevertheless, what are we to do with this? The, the emphasis of the first eight verses is the pervasive perversion and the wickedness of man. It says so much in verse five that the people were wicked. Uh, the wickedness of man was great. The word wicked there is the same word as evil or bad in Genesis two and three, right? There's a tree of knowledge of good and bad. It's this term. They, this is a people who all they do is they eat of the bad fruits. They are bad people. They are wicked people. And they know what is good. They know what is bad. They've eaten of that tree, but they choose the bad. Why? Because mankind is evil. So much so, um, it says that every intention of their heart was evil continually. Now, I do think it's worth meditating upon that. And the temptation is for us to think, well, well, yeah, especially if you buy into the mixture of divine beings and humans, they're going to be super bad, Right? But what you'll find is this same language uh, shows up again and again. Look at verse 11. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth. Behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. By the way, did you notice corrupt, corrupt, corrupt? Repetition in Hebrew is for emphasis. Then go over to chapter 8. So we've had the flood. Now, we would think, okay, everybody was bad back then. Then the flood happened. And... All of Noah's descendants, you and I, we're just better people, right? Chronological snobbery. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. It says, um, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Notice there, it's present tense. And the only people around are Noah and, and, his, and his boys and their wives. Now, he carried the, uh, thin gene with him. Yeah. Yeah, 
We'll talk about this Sunday evening, Lord willing, but there's three major falls in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. There's the fall of man. There's the fall of the nations in chapter 11. Here, here's, the, uh, here's this fall here. And so the fall of man still sticks with Noah as we discover at the end of chapter 9. The sin of Noah is the sin of Adam. He's told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So he plants a garden in the wilderness. It's Eden. And what does he do? He eats the fruit of the tree, or in this case, he drinks the fruit of the vine. And he's naked and not ashamed, but he brings shame upon his family. And it probably involves his wife. We, we can't talk about all of that. And so what is his one son brings wickedness upon himself, but the other two sons, what do they, do? they go in backwards and what do they do? They cover their father. Wasn't Adam covered due to his nakedness? It's the same story, right? So Noah carries that gene of wickedness because the fall still applies to him. So what we see here is this doctrine of depravity that is still our understanding of humanity. It's, it's why we understand this world is broken because it's made up of broken people. So systems are broken, chapter 11, because men are broken. And because men are broken, chapter 3, systems are broken in chapter 11. We live in a world, and again, I'm already giving away my sermon for Sunday night, but we live in a world we want to blame either in the individual, you, not me, of course, I'm not the problem, or we want to blame the system, not me, it's the system. The Bible comes and says it's all the above, plus there's a supernatural element in this. This is what chapter 6 is all about. There's corruption of the earth. But here we see the depravity of man. So I want to just offer this to you real quick. What part of us is depraved? Let's start with the mind. They are darkened in their understanding, speaking of, of the loss. Uh, emotions. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Our desires, our emotions are depraved. What about our heart? The heart's deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I don't recommend quoting that to your, about your spouse. Uh, the conscience, to be pure, all things are pure, but to the filed and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. Physical body, but in, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Your, your body is defiled. Your body is, is sinful. And so what we get then in the story of, of, of the ark is from the surface a story of judgment. And it is. But throughout the story is weaved grace. Now, it's, it's harder to see than judgment because God is going to cleanse the earth by destroying all wickedness. But through it, we see grace. Noah preaches for years, decades. He preaches and he calls people to repent. And Peter will later say, no one will listen. But he was a man of righteousness for he preached despite the, um, despite the, the response. Well, this, the truth of grace is made very clear in chapter 8. So if you want to skip, obviously chapter 7 is all about the flood. The rains came down and the floods went up. In chapter 8, we see that God remembered. Uh, so it says there in verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. Now, the ark, remember, is a type of Eden, right? It's, it's a type. And, and this is a theme that we, we've been tracing through Genesis. Remember when Abraham plants the tree, um, he, and, and there he has an altar? 
It's a garden in the middle of the wilderness. And when we see springs popping up, it's a type of garden. You can't have a garden without water. And you can't have a tree without water. So, uh, and of course, there's a tree in the Garden of Eden, obviously. A couple of them. Here, now, what is the ark made of? It's made of gopher wood. Now, in Hebrew, the word for wood and the word for tree is the same exact word. And it makes sense. Wood is a tree. Right? You're sitting on a tree. Now, we don't use that language in English, but in Hebrew you do. So what you have in the ark is God's presence with his people, a, a, a husband and wife with three sons, like Adam and Eve was a husband and wife with three sons. They, they gather the animals, much in the way that the animals came to, to Adam, and he named them. So he exercises uh, regency and authority over the animal kingdom. Uh, as the head of his household and vice regent over the earth. The story of the flood is a retelling of the creation story. We've done this several times. So, for example, um, notice there in verse 1, you can see it for yourself, chapter 8, verse 1. Um, God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. That word wind in Hebrew and in Greek is the same word for spirit and breath. And the first time it's used is in, the, in Genesis 1-2. I think I have it up here. Um, no, I don't. So Genesis 1-2, you remember that God's spirit hovered over the, the waters? What do you have here? God's spirit is hovering over the waters, yeah. Where did the water come from? In Genesis 1-2? In Genesis 1-2, that was Monday, and that will be Danny's problem Sunday morning. Verse 2 of the Bible is a very difficult verse. Now, if you'd like to spend some time on it, we can. But um, it is a very difficult verse. Those who hold that creation wasn't completely out of nothing, that there was preexistent matter, will go to verse 2. I think they're wrong, but they, they love that verse because God is hovering over it. And it really depends on if the first two verses of the Bible are summary or part of the creation story. I see it as summary. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he, the Spirit hovered over the face of the earth and the waters. I think it's a, it's a very brief summary of days one to six, if, if that helps. Another thing I saw in there is that he had all these seed-bearing things and all that stuff, seeds and trees and mm-hmm. all that stuff. But if you read on down, there was nobody to till the garden, so none of it sprouted until God made it rain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you will. You will. Yeah. So the story of the flood is the story of, re- of, of creation. So it's a retelling of creation. So day one is light. So look at, um, uh, yeah, verse two of chapter eight. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. So, so they were closed. Now they've been opened. That's, that's light. That's, you know, light is coming in. Verse three, the waters receded from the earth continue. Remember day two of creation is the separation of the, of the expanse. So you get a sky and, and you get, so as the waters recede, you get that separation. So we have, we have light and now we have separation of water. Uh, verse four is land on the seventh month on the 17th day of the month. Do you think the number seven is important? If you're retelling the creation story, seven is going to be very important. So it's the seventh month, the 17th day of the month. The ark came to rest on land. 
So now what you have then, as the waters recede, the water seems to come up out of the ground. Now we know that's not what's happening, but in the narrative, that's what we are to see. So the ark, which is a garden, lands on top of a mountain, which is where the Garden of Eden was. It was a mountain. It's the top, top of a mountain, okay. according to Ezekiel and others. Then you get the sun, verse 5 and 6. The waters continue to abate until the 10th month. 10 is a number of perfection too. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountain were seen. So how did they see it if there wasn't a sun there, right? Because now, now the heavens aren't closed. They've been opened. Now, obviously, you get the sun in day one. But you get this reference to light and seeing uh, in verse 2 and in verse 5 and 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. So that's not just that the heavens have been opened, but the ark has been opened. Uh, day five of creation, you get the birds and the fish, right? God created what goes in the sky and what goes in the sea. And so what does you get in verse 7 to 11? He sent forth a raven, right? Not a cardinal, despite what the PowerPoint showed. He sent out a raven and a dove, right? So, so we get this, this imagery. He waits seven days for this and seven days for that. So a whole new cycle of creation. Um, day six of creation is land animals and mankind, verses 14 and 19. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried up. And he says, go and take your wife and family and and expand, right? Right. So, so, so you're going to you're going to uh, go out into the earth. You're going to be fruitful, multiply. That's day six. So, and we've already talked about chapter nine is is a repetition of, of chapter three. But notice this. Go back to verse four of chapter eight. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day, day of the month, the ark came to what? Rest. Rest. That sounds really important if you're retelling the story of of creation. Noah rested in God's creation. In fact, can I tell you what the word for rest is? It's Noah. So when Noah is in a chaotic world, he's named rest. And when God shows up, he chooses a guy named rest who will bring rest to creation. Remember, in the creation story, only one day does it not end. That's day seven. Because all I'm saying, it was evening, it was morning, the first day, second day, third day. Get to day seven, it says, and God rested from all his labor on the seventh day, and he sanctified it. But it never ended. Thematically, day seven isn't supposed to end. So here comes a guy named Rest. He gets off the ark. He is still at rest because his name is Rest. Right? It's, it's, it's a beautiful story that, that you get here. The word deep there in verse 2, Don, is the same word used in Genesis 1-2. That the Spirit hovered over the deep of the earth. Um, Ararat means curse or cur uh, cursed reverse. I saw both, so I'm not a Hebrew expert. He first sends out a raven. Ravens are scavenger birds. They can find death. Doves are the opposite they're good at finding life. So there's seven days that separates the sending out of these birds. And, 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 and when the dove comes back, he comes back with, with an olive branch. And that is a common imagery of peace. Shalom, the seventh day. So notice here, in the story of creation, you begin with life. God breathed into Adam, he became a living being. Life, and it ends up with death. The day you eat of that fruit is the day you will die. This new creation is the opposite. You send out a scavenger in search of death. By the end, what you find is a dove who finds life. 
It's almost as if the Bible was written by God himself, isn't it? It's amazing when you just put all this stuff together. So... Yeah. 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 You're right. All right. One last thing um, here is um, Noah worship. This is uh, verses 13 to 22. Um, now, think of it. If you were in Noah's shoes, what would you do when you get off the ark, right? We, we practically were in Noah's shoes for a year, weren't we? I mean, you remember that when COVID hit a year ago now, or two years ago, <laughs> boy, time with COVID. Um, two years ago, COVID hit. And, and I remember talking with the kids, they're like, 14 days and that's it. Americans ain't going to put up with that. <laughs> Here we are, two years later. And um, when, when Memorial Day came was the initial reopening. It was quickly closed, but there was that reopening. And uh, we were getting stir crazy. And so before that, because uh, Memorial Day weekend, we actually went down to Mississippi to see, see my sister and her family. Well, about, about a few weeks before that, uh, I planned a trip to go to a grave, <laughs> right? I mean, your options were limited. And we explained to the kids, use the bathroom now because we may not be back for six to eight hours. And you, there's nowhere to go. You can't go into Wendy's. You, you, you can't go into anywhere. And I don't know what's in this little town, so... There may not be an option. So you're not taking anything to drink with you. Okay? <laughs> you know, and we're not doing this. And we went to Minerva, Kentucky. Uh, my ancestor, who was a Baptist minister, uh, uh, planted a church up there. He plants them over here. But he's buried on, on private property. I finally tracked the guy down that owns the property. And uh, so we spent a few hours there. That, that's what we did. When we finally had a little bit of taste of freedom, I went to go see dead people. Okay? What Noah does is he responds with worship. And, and what real worship is, is when God and men are reconciled. It's, to use a picture, it's when God and men can walk together in the garden. Because that's what Adam and Eve do. They enjoy each other's presence. There's unity there. And worship is, 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 is our effort to, to, to bring that about. And it comes about by grace. That God shows grace to Noah. And so by that means he, he worships. And so um, um, to do a little bit of skipping, verse 15, um, as, as this begins, he, he sets up for, for worshiping. Um, Noah is told to be fruitful and multiply. This, of course, is exactly the same thing he tells Adam. Um, and, 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 or, yeah, so, so Noah is a new Adam. Uh, he'll say essentially the same thing to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Through you will come uh, a, a, a nation numerous as the stars of the sky. Uh, notice verse 19. I know we're skipping here. Um, well, let's just look at verse 18. So Noah went out, his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creepy thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Um, check this, but I think that is either the same order of the Genesis 1 account or it's the inverse of it. Um, now, it doesn't mention beasts of the sea, but that's, um, or monsters of the sea, but um, also notice that they go out by families. In the creation story, they reproduce according to their kind, every bird according to their kind, every fish according to their kind, every land animal according to their kind. It's basic DNA. That's why evolution doesn't work. 
This is a similar language here. They go out by their families, dogs and cats. And it's a shame that Noah saved the cats. Amen. So um, you're paying attention now. You cat people are. Um, so if you go down to verse 20 is, is Noah's uh, sacrifice and everything. Noah built an altar to the Lord took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Remember, he had seven of those, not just two of every animal. And it was for the purpose of God's grace, that God would save Noah and his family. So he offers clean animals. By the way, it's the first time you see an altar in the Bible. First time we get burnt offerings in the Bible. It's right here. So this becomes the model. Uh, sacrificing clean animals becomes the model for Israel later. Abraham will offer altars and burnt offerings. Remember, Isaac was supposed to be a burnt offering to the Lord. So Noah responds with, with worship. Um, and uh, burnt offering uh, literally means sending up that which goes up. It's a repetition of terms. Um, and and the, the point of a burnt offering is the smoke goes up. So you'll get in... Uh, Leviticus, the priest shall burn all of it, that's the offering, on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I think it's Peter. Some of y'all who know the Bible better than me can, can correct me. Uh, is it Peter that says the sacrifice of Jesus was a sweet aroma to the Lord? That may be Hebrews. Danny, do you know you're the Hebrews expert? Okay. So, it was, so Christ's sacrifice was a sweet aroma to the Lord. It was offered to God. Of course, the incense in the temple was a picture of prayers of the saints going up to, to the Lord. This imagery is early in uh, the Bible. And, um, of course, when, when you see in the Bible, um, when it says that God remembered, that is the language of covenantal grace. Um, and you can get that, um, like in Isaiah, you can get it in Exodus, get in the story of Abraham. God remembered Abraham. And that is what it says before Sarah gets pregnant. So in the story of Noah, then you, you get a story of judgment, and rightly so. But you also get a story of grace despite that judgment. And what we find in chapter 9 with the fall of Noah is, as Don said, that the same wickedness, the seed of wickedness that was in the Nephilim, if you will, lied dormant in Noah, but it was there. And so just as Adam before him, he thrust humanity into judgment again. And it isn't long after another genealogy, you get the Tower of Babel. So what do we do with this? Well, one of the things you get in the Bible and, and you get in the New Testament is, uh, is that the story of the flood is a type of baptism. What I'm not saying is you get your theology of baptism from the flood but rather see it as a type. For example, the crossing of the Red Sea is a type of baptism. After all, if you, I've shown this a thousand times. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is baptized in the wilderness, and then he enters, well, he's baptized in Jerusalem. Then he enters the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights of temptation. So Israel crosses the Red Sea, by which he entered, they entered the wilderness for 40 years. So, so these scenes are, are to be understood as a foreshadowing, if you will, of baptism. Because what baptism does is it cleanses the sinner. That, that's, that's the imagery of it. So, so we understand that it's here is Christ, right? Remember the story of Christ, 
who died, was buried, and raised again, so too we say, here's the sinner who is the old man who has been washed, cleansed. That's biblical imagery. And now what you have is a new man or woman. right? So, so what you have then is God is washing the earth. He's cleansing the earth. And Jesus seems to hint at something like this uh, in um, Luke 12. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is come. Notice there that baptism is a metaphor for his suffering. Upon the cross, he will be baptized, but it is a baptism of judgments. And, and Jesus wants us to see it is, it, is, it is the cleansing of the earth by which he suffers. And I want you to notice that what you get in Christ is the opposite of the story of Noah. In Noah, one man is saved while everyone suffers and is judged. In Christ, and that's a baptism. But in Christ, what it is you get is that one man is judged so that all of humanity might be cleansed. That's the point of the story. On the one end, you get God's judgment. On the other end, you get God's mercy. And those two realities meet in the ark. And then they ultimately meet at the cross. It's no accident that Christ hangs on a tree and is buried in a garden. And it's no accident then that he is crucified on a Friday the day of man, he is laid to rest on the Sabbath, the day of rest, and he is raised from the dead on the day of light, new creation. That's the point of the story, I believe. Well, in the time that remains, uh, do you all have anything you've got for application you wrote down or thoughts you wrote down or anything else? It's a great story. It does. You can read it a thousand times, can't you? It's amazing how the Bible works that way. Yeah, Don. Yeah, in uh, chapter 7, uh, verse, 50, uh, verse 15 says, They went in the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, uh, in which there was the breath of life. Yeah. But then over in 22, it says, Everything on dry land in whose nostril was the breath of life died. The word breath is the word spirit and wind. And so um, if I think I'll send you Bible Project podcast, they explore this. Um, it's, it has a high view of the animal life, which, which then when it, it's added to those that die, it means God has a high view of that, so they're in judgment. It, I still think it's part of the mercy judgment thing that those shown grace have the breath of life. Those shown judgment have the breath of life. What separates those two? Grace. God shows grace to, to these that he did not show to, to these others. But it's interesting. He uses the language of creation to describe uh, Noah, his family, and the animals. Those that have the spirit of life, it's ruach, breath of life, the wind of life. It's the same word in Hebrew, which makes it complicated in translation. But it allows the writer to play with those words. So, so yeah, it's, it's fascinating you brought that up. Breath is spirit. Yeah. Animals have spirits. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in the garden that God 
breathed on Adam and he became a living being. And so your King James will say he became a living soul. All right. I'm not sure that's the accurate translation of that, and I could be wrong. So I think what you have is this retelling of the creation story is that language of God breathing or giving the breath or something. So wind is with creation, right? Um, um, and then also breath of life is in creation. Now, all of that is on the ark. So you have a garden of Eden in the ark. It's a makeshift one. It's a type of tabernacle, uh, really. Um, and... And so that language of breath is so important because it's the breath of life, but it's also the spirit of God that gives life. So God will say, come into the ark. So just as he was in the garden, he brought Adam in. So he's in the ark and he brings Noah and his family in. So it's the breath that gives life, but it's also the spirit that sustains life. So it's fun in Hebrew. It's frustrating in English, but (laughs) by the way, Jesus does the same thing in Greek. Um, You don't know which way the wind blows. John 3, Nicodemus. It blows where it wishes, as does the spirit. It's the same word in Greek. The spirit blows where it wishes, as does the wind, right? It's, it makes translation complicated, but it's fun in Greek and Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, you reminded me while you were talking about that, that before Pentecost, Jesus breathed on the disciples as to receive Jesus' spirit, yet... It's an act of creation. Timing was way off. Yeah, so... so this is, you can, everyone can disagree with me on here. So what people say is there's a contradiction. The spirit did not come down in disciples until Pentecost, but you read John 21 and it's right there. If you read the Bible thematically and theologically, worry less about timing because what John is showing you is that when Christ is risen from the dead, Sunday, day one, a new creation, he gives life to the disciples. That's what God did. So thematically, it makes complete sense that with the resurrection comes life. And that's a theme throughout John's gospel. Uh, At at the Capitol, we're doing Logos, Life, Light, Lamb. And so life has been the theme throughout John's gospel. So when Christ is risen, he takes up life. He gives life, the Spirit. Well, Luke puts that theology at Pentecost. Both can be true, but thematically— John shows us particularly that salvation is creation. So you've heard me say before that phrase, because salvation is not joining another team, changing jerseys. I was, I, I was a pagan, now I like Jesus. No, what salvation is, is an act of creation. You become someone different with a new identity, a new name. You're a new creation, Paul will say, new creatures in Christ. So Jesus has to breathe in them the Spirit. That's creation language, because that's what God did to Adam. It's what God did to Noah, as, as the other Don showed up, so, or showed, rather. So, man, it's, it's good stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So much here. So much here. Anything else you guys have or noted? Yeah. This is deep theology. Oh, that's fine. Question I have. Uh, are we to assume 